Thank you. You may be seated. And as you're sitting down, please uh, open your Bibles to Romans 8, 18 to 25. If you don't have one, there is a red one in the pew in front of you that you may borrow. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. Consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation awaits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God and Father, as we come to your word, encourage and teach and instruct us. May we all be attentive to it, though we are sinners, and be with me as I proclaim it, though I'm a sinner. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen. So, the last few weeks, as we work through Romans 8, Paul has been proclaiming this good news. He's been telling us that we're free from the law, and we have life in the Spirit, and we're adopted into God's family and are God's sons and daughters. But as he proclaims those exciting truths, and as he continues through in this chapter, he always does it with this question, I think, in mind. And the question is, if that is true, why is life still so hard? Why doesn't that always feel like it's true? I mean, I think we feel that. I feel like my whole life has kind of been this whole string of promises that if I just kind of took the next step, then I would be there and everything would be good and fine. Like, just graduate from high school, Eric, and then you'll be emancipated and, you know, and things will be good. And then just graduate from college and then grad school and then find a job and get married and, you know, have your kids and find a better job and, um, you know, and you do that and you do that. And then there's still those, re- those promises, right? Just get the kids out of the house. Just get them to, you know, to an older age. Just reach retirement. And then finally the good times start. That's kind of this treadmill that I think that all of us can feel like we're on. But um, somewhere in me, I think, often this little voice says, but it hasn't gotten better yet. You know what I'm saying, right? That, that as much as we buy into that promise over and over, I think increasingly, somewhere in our hearts, we also recognize, like, man, like, I've been over a lot of those hills. When does, like, the good times start if it hasn't started yet? And that's not just true of life in general. I think that can be true of our experience of Christianity. If we just get saved, we think, then everything is going to be better. If we just learn some more about God, if we just got our spiritual lives in order, if we just overcame this besetting sin, then just over the horizon, everything would be good. Somewhere in our gut, 
I think we suspect that maybe that's not the way faith works either. And what I find interesting about Paul as he works through Romans 8 is he keeps kind of giving nods to that reality even as he proclaims this good and exciting news of what Jesus has done. So like in verse 10, which we looked at two weeks ago, Paul is, he says we have new life in the Spirit and he's proclaiming this hope. But then in verse 10 he says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. He suddenly interjects that tension and that reminder that what he's saying doesn't remove the fact that our bodies are subject to death. They're wasting away, some translations render it. Or verse 17, which we looked at last week. Paul's proclaiming this good news of our adoption into God's family. And then this is how he wraps it up. He says, now if we are children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So again, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And then Paul suddenly brings up suffering. And I think that he is really then in this text turning and shifting on that theme and that question that it arises of, okay, so when do things change? When are things better? And can that make a difference right now? The first answer to make sense, first we have to back way up, okay, and clarify something big about the Bible's story. Because I think sometimes we don't think in that big picture about what it says. So if you asked somebody to summarize the story of Christianity, right, if you just walked up to someone on the street, they would probably actually just back away and (laughs) and be scared. But if they answered you, I think it would be, and if they knew about Christianity, right, I think they'd give you a story like this. This is the story of the Bible, they'd say. They'd say, well, we do some bad things, and the Bible calls those bad things sin, and God will judge those sins, and so Jesus died for those sins so that God doesn't have to judge us and so that we can go to heaven instead of hell. And that is all true, but it's not everything that needs to be said. Um, That summary of Christianity is sort of like starting a book in chapter two or three, and it's, you know, and stopping at a chapter or two before the book is over, right? It's true, but without those things at the beginning and those things at the end, you get the wrong idea, I think. Like, like if you watch an action movie, right, and you cut out the stuff at the beginning where the, the, the guy's like, you know, happy and with his family and everything is good, and you cut out the stuff at the end where he's like, you know, happy and with his family and everything's good. Like if you, if you cut those things out, you still have the movie, but it's not this sort of heroic story, right, of like rescue or trying to get something back. It's just like a guy killing a whole bunch of other guys, and, and you miss the point of it. Um, and we can do that with the Bible. So let me briefly try to give the whole story of the Bible. Um, Some of us have seen something like this before, but the biggest picture story of the Bible works like this, right? First, there is creation at the beginning. God makes the world, and as the Bible says over and over, he makes the world very good. It's good. He creates our world, um, and it's like our world, but it's not like our world because sin hasn't entered the picture, and nothing is messed up. So you've got all the misty waterfalls and mountain peaks and all the like good stuff that sings forth God's glory. And you've got the fish and the birds and the, the ants and the, the anteaters, right? And the things that show his creativity and all of that good stuff. The bounty and the hundreds of fruits and hundreds of grains and all of that. And none of the death and decay and darkness that haunts our world now. That's the beginning of the story. Creation. God creates everything, and he creates us 
and puts us in charge of that world. Um, he tells Adam and Eve when he makes them that they are to have dominion and authority over the rest of creation and that they are to work the garden in service to God. So they're God's servants. God is like this king and creator and we are supposed to be like the lords, the ambassadors, um, his servants in the world. But we don't do that. And that's the second big point of the Bible story. Rebellion. Our rebellion. God makes the world and puts us in this place to serve him and serve it. And we say, no, this is mine. We take it for ourselves and we take God's position, in a sense, for ourselves. And because of that, everything gets broken. This world is under a curse now. And we are under a curse. And so that means when we look at our world, we're seeing two things at the same time. We're seeing that very good of God's creation... And we're seeing something that is broken and dark and not the way that it's supposed to be. Let me just pause there because you can see that in part of what Paul's saying in our text today. In Romans 8.20, Paul says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope, and then it goes on. But, so Paul is saying, that, that this rebellion that we undertook, this curse that the world is under, that that's somehow the creation being subjected to frustration, that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. But there's hope, and that's because of the third act in the story, redemption. That word redemption is a church word, but it means, it means saving something, rescuing something, buying something back. God's response to our rebellion and the destruction of this world is to start this project by which he redeems the world that runs through all of the Bible, and he does it by redeeming us. That's, that's the bulk of the Bible. That's the part of the story that it's telling, right? That's why God calls Abraham. That's why God creates Israel. That's why God comes ultimately as Jesus and saves us as his people, is to start redeeming us. And here's the thing to recognize about that. That idea of redemption... It's, um, it's meant to be a redemption of the world by redeeming us because of that place that God put us in. Um, Paul talks about that in our reading too. If you look in verse 19, he says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So creation is waiting to be set free, but what it's waiting for is for us to be, in a sense, revealed as God's children. For us to be restored to that place of serving God and ruling over it rightly, being his servants in the world. See, God hasn't changed his mind about our job in the world as human beings. We were created to be his stewards and caretakers, like we said, and that's what he's restoring us to. That's, in a sense, why God is saving us. He's saving us because through that, the world is ultimately saved. And so in God's redemption of human beings, when that is ultimately accomplished, the hope is that the creation itself can be healed, and then that's the last point of the story. It is. The last point is restoration. Restoration. At the end of the story, Jesus returns, and just as he started that process of redemption, he brings it to completion, and he heals and redeems the world and creation itself. He wipes sin out of the world, and destroys death, and opens the graves, and makes everything new. And that's what Paul describes in verse 21. 
what we read from Romans. He says that God allowed all the things that he allowed in the world in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That creation itself, he says, this universe will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory that starts with this restoration of us as God's children. Let me just say that last part again in another way. Because somehow I feel like we often miss the glory of what the Bible is saying here. Um, We talked about this back during Lent more in depth when Jesus was kind of discussing things in Matthew 25 about the end of the world. But often, I think, in sort of modern folk Christianity, we have this idea that the the Bible story is just sort of like I die and then I um, go up and just drift in heaven forever and ever the end. And that's not what the Bible actually teaches. It does teach that when we die, our souls go and they're with Jesus. And there is great comfort and hope in that fact. But what it says then happens is that Jesus comes back to this world. And that when he comes back to this world, our souls are somehow also brought back to this world. And we're resurrected, right? We get new bodies, Every, every month when we say the Apostles' Creed before the Lord's Supper, that's one of the things we confess. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so in the Bible's story, then, it ends here in a sense. Here restored though, right? With resurrected people in what is in a sense a resurrected world. And we're doing what we were meant to be. Being, being the lords and ladies, right? With God as our king of this creation. And the world will be very good again, and death and decay will be destroyed. That's the story that the Bible tells. And that's the story that Paul bases this text on. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Just listen to those couple of verses that we referenced from our reading today with that in the back of your head, because I feel like it makes them sing. So starting in 8.19, it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So that's the hope that Paul proclaims. But that's not... The whole story of what he's doing with it. He tells us that not just because it's an interesting idea, but he tells us that to try to answer two specific questions that we have about the world. To answer two specific questions. The first of those questions is what do we make of the world? What do we make of the world as we experience it right now? So if you go on and read verse 22, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So Paul, Paul, he's picturing this future hope that he just declared of all creation being made new. He's picturing that like a baby, like a beautiful newborn infant, right? We all, I mean, babies are incredible. Everyone on some just deep level gets that. I mean, and, and I've been there, you know, and held all three of our kids right after they were born in my arms and the three of the most incredible moments of my life. So that new creation is like a baby, but the baby hasn't been born 
yet. This age, he says, is the age where the mother is in labor. And while we all love babies, I don't know anybody that loves the process of labor. And I think that that's meant to tell us a couple of things. On the one hand, it's meant to tell us that the world is not the way that it's ultimately meant to be. It is not how it's meant to be. That pain of childbirth, the pain of labor, is actually part of that curse that God places on the world back in Genesis 3. And it's not a minor thing. It is, so I have been told, kind of a big deal to go through the process of labor. <laughs> um, so, Paul, so Paul's saying, right, that this age, it's going to feel in a sense like that. It will be painful. The world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And simply becoming a Christian doesn't change that because this is the age that we live in. But that image is meant to give us hope. Because unlike most of the pain that we experience in this life, childbirth is a pain that holds a promise of something beautiful at its end. Something that's beautiful and that somehow makes it worth it. And that's how Paul applies this reality to us. So in verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. So Paul is saying that somehow that glory will make our present sufferings worth it. But that's where I want to be careful. I think some Christians talk this way in a way that is kind of unhelpful, right? They, they talk about heaven in a way that is dismissive of suffering. You know, life is hard, but then you go to heaven when you die, so everything will be all right. And that can feel like it cheapens suffering. Often because the way they're using it, it does cheapen suffering. But here's the thing that strikes me about Paul. He says this. He has this vision of glory that he says makes his suffering somehow light and momentary. And he is not the like, the like bourgeois, suit-wearing, upper-middle-class church guy, right? Who's had just an easy, privileged life. I mean, he has suffered. He has lost his possessions and his reputation. He's been whipped until his back is bloody repeatedly. He's had friends murdered for their faith. And he, in just a couple of years after writing this, is going to get murdered for his faith. But somehow, he still feels like this vision of glory doesn't cheapen his experiences. And there's a couple of reasons for that, but here's part of why. I think that um, when people use that promise of heaven to sort of deny suffering, often they're trying to say by that, your suffering isn't a big deal. And the reason I think they're doing that is because oftentimes people's feeling of what heaven is going to be like can't really make up for very much. I mean, if heaven is just this hallmark, precious moments kind of collage of clouds and harps and fat baby angels and harp, you know, I mean, it's, and it's kind of vaguely pleasant floating around somewhere, I mean, that's not bad, but, but that doesn't get me excited to go there, right? That doesn't make up for much of the world's brokenness. When people joke about how they'd rather be in hell, where the fun is going to be, and that isn't, I mean, reflective of what the Bible says about hell, but it is kind of damning of the picture that plenty of us communicate about heaven. So let me just try to paint the Bible's picture, and I don't, again, pretend this will make it all better, but let me just try to use some of the images that scripture uses for the end of the story. 
Right? In the first place, remember, we're not just talking about, like, fat baby angels and clouds. We're talking about resurrected immortal bodies, right? You know, on, I mean, on an earth made new. And here's how the Bible pictures that renewed earth. It, it says that the bounties of creation are overflowing. They're freed from the curse. And so the trees are heavy with fruit, and the fields are, are, are aching under the weight of grain, and hills flow with milk, the Bible says, and rivers bubble with wine. Those are the pictures that the Old Testament prophets use of this new creation. And so that's a world where, where we will climb the Andes and, and sail them out the, the oceans and this one isn't explicitly spelled out in the Bible, but I think, like, explore the universe and, you know, and all of the, like, beauties and glories of creation will be there. And we will work there and live there in that resurrected earth, but free from all of the limitations of this life in this age. So we'll work, but there will be no frustration from our labor. The curse in Genesis pictures the earth somehow as resisting our work now, as thorns and thistles springing up and the ground somehow fighting against us as we seek to work it. And that will be done. We will build and till and create, and they, things will always go the way they're supposed to be. And we won't get tired there, and we won't get old, and we won't get weak, and you can go, you know, run out in the fields in the new heavens and new earth, and run faster and faster until it feels like you're flying, and you'll never fall, and you'll never tire. You're not running from anything, and there will be no sin there. There won't ever be an unkind word. No one will ever think an ungracious thought. We won't ever be suspicious of each other. Nobody will ever be hurt or victimized or taken advantage of, and that will go on forever, which is one of those words that I can say, but just you can't get your head around. So here's, let me try this. Like, one of the things that often I regret in this life is how little time I have for so many people, right? There's all these people that I would love to spend more time with, and these friendships that I have that I, that I value, but, you know, you, you see them, and then you have to part, and then you're reunited, but it's just too brief, right? And, and I hate that. Um, but, but in the new heavens and new earth, um, we will have infinite years to get to know these people. And, I mean, an infinity divided by infinity is infinity, according to math, right? So infinite years for each one. Or if that doesn't make sense, think about it like this. If there's, so 10 billion billion years, okay? <laughs> that is still nowhere close to forever. But if there's 10 billion people on the new heavens and new earth, that means that you have a billion years to get to know each one of them. That's the outer edges of eternity. And God will be there with us, visibly. And his glory, the rightness and love and trueness that is so radiant from God that it actually shines will somehow be our light and our warmth. And it will comfort us in those first, I don't know, billion or ten billion years when we look back on the aches of this life and weep for it. He himself Revelation 21 says, we'll stoop down and dry our tears. So here's the point of all of that. The Bible doesn't claim that our suffering is small or no big deal. And it doesn't promise us in this life that it will end. But it does claim that somehow the glory at the end of the story is so unimaginable that it can bring healing even to the hurts that we experience in this age. 
that if you could experience just one moment of that pure, undiluted joy that we will know in the new heavens and new earth, that our hearts would explode. These mortal bodies are too weak to even contain that joy. We can only grasp the outer edges of it. And that can give us strength in the midst of suffering, because that's a hope that we can look forward to without having to deny how painful the pain is in the present. All right? I say all of that's true, but I think it naturally then makes us ask that second question. All right, but what do we do in the present? What do we do in the present right now? And I thought about that glory to come. And I found myself thinking about this quote from C.S. Lewis, which in many ways is the way he pictures it. This is from his book, The Great Divorce, and this, this guide is speaking to Lewis's narrator um, as he experiences heaven. And this guide says, Son, he said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even the agony into glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of this sin. And here's the thing that I found myself thinking about from that quote. A, I, I mean, it's a beautiful quote. And, Lu and Lewis is saying, he's trying to say what Paul says here, that somehow glory works backward in a way that can transform even our present sufferings. But it's the first part that is important because he's, he's giving this, he's telling this to the narrator, but he's telling him that you cannot, in your present state, understand eternity, even as he says it. So we can believe that glory, but that is not something that we experience right now. And I think that's why Paul's conclusion in this section works the way it does. He gives us this declaration of future glory. He tells about creation itself being restored and ending its subjection to death and decay. And then in verse 24, he says, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? So Paul calls us in this age to hope. I mentioned that the promise of future glory can be used in this kind of destructive way to minimize our pain. And part of that has to do with the fact that we have too small a picture of glory. But the other part of it, I think, is that we can often confuse the promise of wholeness with the promise of hope. The promise of wholeness with the promise of hope. Here's what I mean. There is a promise of wholeness for us as Christians. A promise of final and ultimate healing and peace and completeness. But that promise is for when Jesus returns and we are resurrected. I think people often, I hear Christians say things that boil down to saying, don't cry in the face of sickness and death. Don't grieve, don't weep because, because heaven. But the thing is, the point at which there is no more crying is heaven, right? That is when the promise that tears will end comes. This age is not the age where wholeness is here. Instead, in this age, there's a time for weeping. That's Paul's point in verse 23. He takes this image of creation groaning and screaming in the pains of labor, and he applies it to our present experience. He says, not only so... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
grown inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says that just like creation is crying out in the pains of labor, that's what we're doing in this age too. That our full adoption as God's children, our receiving the inheritance we have in Jesus, that promise of wholeness, that's like the child that we're waiting for, but we're in the middle of labor in a sense. And I, I know from, from foolish experience that if you look at, you know, your wife when she's in the middle of labor and try to say, like, honey, just, just think about how great the baby's going to be. It, it, it's no big deal, right, what you're experiencing. That that's not going to end well for you. You're, you're going to get punched, deservedly. But that's what we're doing when we expect people to, to, to experience wholeness in this life. We cannot demand that people not grieve or ache in this age. But that promise of wholeness is coming, and so what we have in this age is hope. We have this promise of hope. Hope is not a denial of present sufferings. In fact, hope kind of assumes that things right now aren't the way they're supposed to be. Right? I'm not, I don't hope in what I already have. That's what Paul says in verse 24. But hope enables us to endure the present. This is how Paul ultimately applies that future hope in verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So glory doesn't fix our present suffering, but it does provide us with a promise we can hope in that the darkness will ultimately lift. It enables us to wait. And then it does one other thing when we think about what we do in the present, I think. If you look back at verse 23 once more, Paul says, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. And we focused on the groaning and the waiting a minute ago. But Paul also says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the language of agriculture for Paul. The first fruits are the very, they're the first ripe apples on the tree. They're the first ears of corn that would be ready for harvest. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit working in us is like those first fruits. And part of that is simply meant to be a promise uh, to, to aid our hope, right? That as we see the Holy Spirit working in us and working in people around us, that can help assure us of that coming glory, but it also means more than that, because as much as the first fruits mean that the harvest is still to come, it also means that it has begun, right? If this full harvest is glory and new creation, then Paul is saying that the beginnings of that are happening in us right now. I think sometimes um, a lot of us lack I guess I'd call a vision for the Christian life. A vision. And I mean that kind of like if you work in some big corporation, they'll have a vision statement. And the purpose of that kind of statement is to give you a picture of like, this is where we're headed ultimately. This is where we ultimately want to be. And so when we think about the present and what we should be doing right now, that vision is supposed to, to tell us what we should be up to in the present. And I think sometimes we lack that vision in our Christian walks. When we talk about the present, we all know some list of things that we should and shouldn't be doing, but we struggle to see much beyond that. And so here's, here's, just do this with me. Think, we talked about the glory of that new heavens and new earth, right? Think about that world and picture it um, where everything is healed and whole and everything is beautiful. 
That is our vision statement for our lives in the present. New creation is not just this thing we're hoping for, but it's also supposed to be the vision on which we start to shape our lives right now. So like, so like that world that we described, that is a world of perfect peace and harmony and justice between human beings. That's where we're headed, and so our call as Christians is to think about how can we make, um, you know, in our little corner of the world, make things more like that today. And I don't mean that primarily in just the peace and justice in a political sense, right? Which I feel like is where our brains go. And that's not wrong. I mean, we should vote and be participants in democracy in a way that reflects, you know, our desire for, you know, for a society that's just and peaceful. But, um, but I mean, in our lives, like, do I see someone struggling in this age? Then I'm called to go help them because my vision is for an age where that struggling is healed. Do I know someone who is suffering under injustice? My call as a Christian is to go stand up for them because my vision is that world where that injustice is ended. Are people, you know, at war with each other that I know? Am I one of them? <laughs> Am I at war with people, right? I need to go seek to make peace and do the costly work of being a peacemaker. And the same thing applies to every area of our life. We think about that vision of the perfect world of the new heavens and new earth, and then we seek to live out of that vision right now. So the new creation is a world where hurts are healed, and so we should go work for the healing of the people that we know. And the new creation is a world where we work and labor, but it's for God's glory and in this sort of healed and restored way. And so as much as we can in this broken world, we should seek to work and labor for the glory of God. We should in seek to, body, to embody the values of new creation in our lives right now. That idea that we make glory our vision and then we try to seek it in our lives, I think that idea actually helps us make a lot of sense of some of the things that are hard about the call of Jesus. See, when you think about the life Jesus calls us to in this world, it sounds kind of crazy, right? Love your enemies, repay evil with good, take what you have, give to the poor, forgive, rejoice in trials. That all sounds kind of crazy. All of us have heard people or thought for ourselves when we hear those commands that the world just doesn't work that way. Right? You've, you've, you've thought that way before. And you've thought that because it's true, in a sense. This world does not work that way. Not yet. But that's because we aren't supposed to be living out the way of this world right now. Our lives aren't simply supposed to make sense by the standards of this present age with all of its brokenness and sin. And I mean, why would we want them to? We've seen the product of this age, right? And it's, it's death and decay and sadness and shallowness. We are not called to just live in the way of this world, but we're called to be the first fruits of that world to come. To embody a new way of living. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, start to live as if that new world is true in the present. Even though it's costly. And even though we might suffer. And even though, in a sense, this age might take advantage of it. We are called to live as if that world is true. Not because that's going to, to fix everything, right? Um, don't, don't hear me say that. Don't hear me say that if we just all kind of live out our Christian faiths that the world will all be perfect and new creation will be here. That waits for when Jesus returns. 
But because as we do that, we start to get a foretaste of that world, and we stand as a signpost to this age of the better age to come. That when people look at our lives and our communities, they're supposed to get the beginnings of these hints that there is something greater and grander and deeper that God is returning to restore to this world. And they're be- called to begin to get a hunger for that and a thirst for that. So what do we do in the face of the darkness? Well, Paul says, first, we wait and hope. We don't expect things to be better tomorrow or the day after, but we set our hope on glory and we don't settle for anything less than that. We wait, and we seek to walk in the light of that day. We set our eyes on Jesus, and on that restored world that he's ultimately calling to bring, and we seek to live as citizens of that world, as little beacons of light here in this land of shadow. That's what we're called to. Would you pray with me? Father, I confess that there is much in this world that makes the hope of glory hard to believe and that there are many times that I struggle to embrace that and many times that I live according to this world. But I pray that you would fix all of our gazes on that heavenly city that is coming to earth, new Jerusalem descending on the new heavens and new earth and all of life and creation restored, that we would have hope of healing in that day and that we might live as the citizens of that city. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who came to work our redemption and who will come again to make all things new. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me?